This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 1st, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. How has Montana advanced a more realistic set of housing policies amid a large influx of people from other states? Kendall Cotton of the Frontier Institute discussed his group's role in making it easier to build in Montana. People like to poo-poo California-style housing policies, as they're called, even though, it, we must admit, California's housing policies have improved somewhat. Yes, they and, have. And significantly. And it's driven by, essentially, an emergency uh, in housing in California. So when we say California-style housing policies, we're talking about the ones that existed prior to a couple of years ago. Correct. Um, in Montana, as in many other states... There are people who are very concerned about maintaining natural beauty, about uh, not living next to skyscrapers, uh, about not living next to hog farms, uh, you know, and, and many other issues. And there are somewhat small, but they're very loud group of people who are very concerned about living with literally any inconvenience that living near people will deliver. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the people who are concerned about the, the minor inconveniences posed by living in oh, a neighborhood, um, often they win. They win a lot. And so what, just give me the sense of what has happened in Montana and the work that you guys have done to try to help everyone sort of reorient their thinking about what we are due as property owners and what being a property owner imposes upon us <laughs> in terms of how we associate with those people who own the adjoining property. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So let's flash back two years ago. That's when, you know, really the current affordability crisis for housing in Montana started ramping up. We had a lot of folks moving in from other states uh, on the coast. You know, a lot of folks during the pandemic said, hey, why aren't we away from people living in a state like Montana that's beautiful, has this great outdoors? And uh, has these small, beautiful cities. So um, that's when the crisis started ramping up. And for people in Montana, the concern wasn't just about affordability. Affordability was a big concern. I mean, the the median price in Bozeman for a home for a time was eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know, that's that is pretty high for a, a college town. But um, beyond affordability, the concern for the average everyday Montanan was that we're going to lose. The character of this state that we love, this this um, you know this place is going to become like California if we grow too fast and too hard. So our mission and our question that we posed was: Okay, how can Montana or other rural states grow in a way that preserves the character of the state, that avoids the class conflicts that we see in places like California, and that preserves people's property rights and their right to you know be left alone? So that was our mission, and that's what we took on with our uh, Montana Zoning Atlas project over the last two years. And what we've done is be able to crystallize in Montana legislators' minds, but also in a lot of you know the general public, that the way that we can do that, the way that we can achieve that vision and avoid a fate like California, is by defending property rights and allowing cities to grow a bit denser to accommodate the population that's coming in. And keep it away from the rural areas that we love, the ranch land, the open areas, the open space, uh, the the outdoors that Montanans love. Let's let our cities grow denser. That That's one of the things about housing policy generally that is uh, so uh, irritating to me 
is that people don't understand that if you want, there are trade-offs. There are clear trade-offs. If you want the natural beauty spread all over everywhere, unspoiled by some some guy's uh, big house, then density has to play a role. And that density ought to be in a vibrant mm-hmm. downtown area of, of you know either a small town or a big city. And uh, it's very hard to get that density when you have people saying, no, I want things exactly the way they are. I, I don't want any changes at all. And uh, so in terms of getting the public behind the notion of, yes, this is my property. I get to do what I want with my property. And uh, we should be welcoming to new people uh, as as much as welcoming as we can to new people who want to enjoy the same things that we've enjoyed for so long. Um, what do you appeal to? We were able to appeal to almost anybody who who had an interest, but like in the the sense within somebody's mind, what are you Correct. appealing to in yeah. order to get them to say yes on uh, a more uh, realistic set of housing policies? So we had an amazing bipartisan coalition that we were able to cobble together for this effort, and uh, we had folks who were on the left, organizations that were like renters advocacy organizations that we were working with. And for folks on the left who are concerned about social justice, who are concerned about you know the 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 crisis of homelessness uh, that's rising in a lot of these communities, they were able to come to them and say, "Look, we need a place for these people to live. We need to build more homes so that we have affordable options for people." They also were able to speak to folks who cared about the climate. You know, who were able to say, "Hey, if if we need to avoid dependence on cars, the way we do that is we build walkable communities, and we need to legalize that." And then on the right. Groups like ours were able to go to people who are concerned about property rights and, and saying, why is the government able to dictate what property owners can do with their own homes as long as they're not hurting anybody? And then uh, we also were able to talk to maybe the more communitarian uh, conservative perspective, which says, I don't want my neighborhood going to hell. Like I, I, I want to preserve the character of my neighborhood. So what we said to them is that, great, you don't allow growth in the city center where people are moving. The growth is going to come to you. And so in order to avoid that fate and your neighborhood changing for for the future, we need to allow density in our cities. We need to free property owners up there to build the homes that we need to build to accommodate population growth. And one thing that really appeals to me as a parent, somebody with, a, with three children, uh, I want them to feel comfortable going into uh, civil society and engaging without me. And I want them to be able to do that at a young age. And part of that is having, as you say, walkable communities where people, uh, there is there are opportunities for both commerce and living uh, that you can walk to and from. And that's just, to me, it's a beautiful vision. It's not realistic in some places, but it's a wonderful idea. And I don't understand why uh, more people on the right are not... Uh, actively trying to understand the policy that will bring that kind of sort of idyllic it's like ned flanders says you know it's a vision of america that only exists in the minds of us republicans but that idea of being able to engage with your community Mm -hmm. freely and openly you gotta have people yes living it and and interacting with one another freely and i just don't know why that's not more appealing to 
your average conservative? Well, I think that that conservatism, as we were discussing uh, prior to the podcast, I think that you know essentially they have embraced some progressive values of top-down planning, and I think that you go back. So what we we we, uh, we were able to demonstrate in Montana, go back a hundred years or, or even you know 150 years when we were in our frontier days. And you look at how the cities were structured back then, these boom towns, these mining boom towns, they were tiny little dense developments. There was shotgun houses, there was duplexes, there was triplexes. Um, there was a lot of density in growing places like Butte and Helena in the frontier days. And you look at those historic districts in those towns now, and the way that the blocks are built and the way that the lots are designed, and the, those lots that existed back then you can't you can't build those same homes now it's illegal i like to tell people and i said look around your community this is something that nolan gray who you're mm-hmm. probably familiar with uh he, he offers a pitch to people said look around your town identify the houses or the buildings that are absolutely illegal to build today and they're of course they're all 100 years old or 70 years old but these are the buildings that make us think about a wonderful, beautiful, vibrant, uh, s- small town or big right. city. Right. So what we did is we were able to go and um, we were able to tell a story about what Montana's future could be like. And we looked to California and we said, you know, look, if you go back 100 years ago, um, the advertisements, you know, advertising L.A. to people in New York were sounding very similar to what Montana's build like now. Oh, there's fresh air here. There's a lot of sunlight. There's access to the outdoors. And um, the problem was is that LA was one of those first cities to pioneer this concept of strict uh, zoning, single family zoning, where they carve out you know, the majority of their city for only the most expensive types of homes, the uh, single family homes on a large lot. And they exclude the density, the duplexes and the triplexes and exactly what we were talking about. And what has it done? Well, it's led to LA being the sprawling metropolis, concrete jungle. There's cars everywhere. There's development taking over all the open land. And so we were able to say, okay, Montana legislators, look at a map of Missoula, Montana, side by side with a zoning map of LA. They look identical. So if our cities are zoned like LA, that means they're going to grow like LA. So in 25 years, Missoula is going to feel like California. That's not a fate anybody wants in Montana. So we have got to address this problem. We have got to allow property owners to develop more densely to avoid that fate. So uh, you had some door hangers. I wasn't going to bring this up because this is sort of a naked political thing (laughs) in terms of getting people on your side of the issue. And every line of it was exactly something that I regularly try to tell people. Uh, could you walk us through some of the things that were on the the door hangers, which again, I will say you should have brought them with you. To, <laughs> we're recording in Chicago and I think everybody needs to see this little piece of, uh, of uh, helpful information for people who are considering the issue. Yeah. Well, like I said, we had a bipartisan coalition that we were working with and uh, one of the groups, uh, Americans for Prosperity, um, put together some of our messaging points into a door hanger. And they were going around and, and putting these on on constituents' homes in these key legislative districts. And we focused on this message, this narrative of uh, the anti-California, like we were just discussing. And so on the door hangers, it said, you know, oppose California-style zoning, support property rights, support the right to use your property. 
And that's what we did. We framed instead of exclusionary zoning, that's kind of the buzzword that you hear with a lot of the kind of think tank groups that focus on these issues. We focused in on uh, California style zoning. What is California style zoning? Well, it's this zoning like LA, you know, like the map of LA where they exclude, you know, the duplexes and the triplexes from three quarters of the city. That's California style zoning. And what does it do? Well, it turns your state into California. It infects your cities and leads to sprawl and development that takes over all the open land. Let's talk about legal action. Oh, sure. Because, uh, you know, in so many of these cases where somebody has a plan for a piece of property, be it apartments or maybe it's just a single family home, they bring it before this group of unelected people who have been given sort of un, almost unlimited power to tell you how your property can be developed or if it's going if it can be developed in at all and and from the perspective of sewage or sanitation or you know city services that you you are bound to consume um I can understand that but beyond that they get into aesthetics yeah and aesthetics are hard to write into statute and for the most part it it feels like a lot of people who would have great ideas for buildings that would contribute tremendously to a community, uh, be they housing or commercial developments, um, they just they just choose not to do it. Right, right. It's too hard. It, it it caters the system caters to people who have lawyers and who have develop you know outside development counsel that they, that can guide them through this complicated process. So here's what we did about that in Montana this last spring. We actually repealed and replaced our entire land use planning statute. And what we replaced it with was directly addressing this problem that you're talking about. So now in Montana, cities over the next three years are going to go through a new comprehensive planning process. They're going to get all the NIMBYs to the table, all the public hearing people to the table and say, let's agree on the zoning map. Once they agree on the zoning map, no more public hearings. All development will be approved with an administrative review after that point, as long as it substantially conforms to the zoning map, the zoning code. So um, that's going to give a lot of predictability to this process. So you know, if somebody has an idea for a home, they they can they can put it before the committee and expect that it will be approved. I like to call that shall issue permits for housing. Yes, exactly. Because people in in, in other contexts, people know exactly what that means. Right. It means unless you've got a really good reason. You're going to give me that permit. That's right. So then going beyond that, you know, that's, that's obviously a fantastic reform and something that honestly, no other state has done. Montana, Montana is far and beyond other states in this, in this area. Um, but the next step for uh, frontier Institute, you know, looking beyond that comprehensive planning process is now, now we actually need to go start scrutinizing, uh, the zoning statutes themselves and saying, why is, should the government be allowed to dictate? the color of your home or what kind of hedges you can have in your yard. Um, that seems to me to be an uh, unconstitutional infringement, infringement on somebody's fundamental right to use their property. That's not a compelling state interest in health and safety. So we're going to go start um, you know, kind of calling these things out in the courts and saying, if this local government thinks that this is a compelling, in, there is a compelling interest in regulating this use of property, Prove it in court. Right. And that's something that I think uh, it undercuts the amount of discretion that is given to these local authorities who 
are accountable to the loudest voices in the room. And, and that is not how property rights work. Right. Right. Exactly. I, one of the ways it's been put by some of our younger activists who've been working with us on this project is that, you know, laws shouldn't be made according to vibes. They need to be made for a very, very good reason. If we're going to get the government involved in, in force and in, enforcing people not to use their property at the point of a gun, we need to be very careful about how we use that power. And so it should only be used in, in, in you know, a reasonable context for the most important reasons to protect other people's health and safety. And that's that's the only real legitimate use of land use regulation that I can see. Um, beyond that, you're, you're getting outside of the bounds of the Constitution and um, this idea of protecting people's right to be left alone and to do what they want with their own property. Kendall Cotton is president of Montana's Frontier Institute. We spoke earlier this week in Chicago. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.